This episode of the King's Hall Podcast is brought to you by Defined Benefit Partners. It's also brought to you by Private Family Banking. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Squirrely Joe's Coffee. In a recent Twitter post, Dr. Owen Strand wrote, Something is wrong. I do mean deeply wrong with a number of self-professed reformed men. There is a dark alchemy at work in our circles. Terrible ideas are being normed, end quote. In response to this tweet, Pastor Andrew Isker wrote, quote, When you have been marinated in the post-war liberal democratic moral consensus, the views held universally by reformed Protestants and all the rest of Christendom do look like a dark alchemy. This is, of course, an unstated reference to Eric Kahn's post about adoption, among other things. But the truly dark spirit that is foreign to all of humanity until very recently is that of universalism over and against particularity. You see this for decades among middle-class conservative evangelicals riddled with unspoken white guilt who will go to great lengths and great expense to promote foreign missions and foreign adoption. No one is saying any of those things are bad. Of course, it is good to support the work of the church throughout the world and to bring orphans out of dire poverty. What is off about this is the priority for the very far away over against the very real needs nearby. Not far from the large, wealthy evangelical church are communities that have been ravaged by globalism. The entire Midwest is gutted, factories that paid a good wage gone, replaced by nothing but fentanyl and meth. While the respectable evangelical crowd watch their IRAs and 401ks grow fat due to the GDP gains from globalist devastation of our heartland, many people very close by have suffered greatly. We will travel the far corners of the world to make one convert while those nearest to us suffer. Who is my neighbor? The Pharisees once asked Jesus. Universalism will say all humanity across the globe is our neighbor. But such abstractions allow us to pretend that we are, quote, saving the world without having to get our hands dirty. A few 20s in the offering plate for missions to Africa absolves a conscience panged by historically unfathomable wealth. And we can watch our countrymen become further racked by despair without feeling a thing. The MAGA chud is set upon by thieves and left to die. Russell Moore and David French pass by on his left, not wanting to associate with such a deplorable man. Owen Strand passes by on his right, in a hurry to give his next Jeremiah against kinism. But the new Christian right, Dark Alchemist, takes the man to the inn and pays to have him cared for. Everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to help mom with the dishes. Everyone wants to be lauded for how much they care about foreign missions and foreign adoption. But no one wants to minister to their own people who are discarded by every respectable person. End quote. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the King's Hall podcast. I am one of your hosts, Eric Kahn, and I want to introduce the other host. Thank one you, of the Eric. most talented, handsome, brilliant, songwriting men that I know, Pastor Dan Absolutely, I knew it was coming. <laughs> it was Dan great, Burkle. you know. Uh, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. You know, that yeah. was a very glowing introduction, and I will own it completely. Yeah. And it is all, all true. Oh, and Brian's here, too. Well, I mean, and also Pastor Brian Sauvé, one of the most honest, direct, puddle glum like characters that I know. Wait thank a minute, you, are we confusing? Thank, thank you, Eric. Oh, I'm now? misreading my notes. That's what's happening. No, I won't. Yeah. I like being pu- puddle glums. Puddle glum. That is a 
compliment, Puddle a Glen's high compliment. Game. Yeah, I mean, we, wow. We actually, as a teaser, so Dan and I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Dr. Joe Rigney. Yes, what and a king. we were talking about Narnia, and Dan had asked him a really interesting question. He said, who's your favorite character? Yeah, yeah. He said King yeah. Loon. King Loon, was obviously. obvious, but, uh-huh. but the second was Puddle Glum. And I said, I relate to that. I, I, Puddle Glum and I have similar demeanors and dispense, uh, you know, and, uh, but maybe not with the virtue. I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, I haven't had any witch fires to put out yet with my bare feet. It would be rather, um, you know, boastful of anybody to say like, yeah, the gr- one of the greatest characters demonstrating astonishing virtue in the face of certain death and bewitchment far beneath in the deeps of the earth. Yeah. I'm exactly like him. I mean. Come well, I mean, it'd be I like was saying somebody else would say it. I'm Aslan. <laughs> I really identify the most with Aslan. <laughs> Actually, uh, so I chose Reepicheep. I was like, yeah, he's it's just the spicy little mice, you know. It, you That's... you'd remind me somewhat of Reepicheep in in many many uh, regards, like the the speed with which Reepicheep will draw his sword to attempt to duel other people, <laughs> yeah. even close friends. That's what I mean. It's so great. It's honor right. demands it. <laughs> honor, honor demands it. I will it. kill you right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, gentlemen, it's actually a good tie-in to the, the topic for this podcast. We'll be talking about adoption. Uh, Brian said some things on Twitter that were taken out of hand and out of context. Wait, wait. Oh, I mean, was I it? did. <laughs> People keep tagging me, so like deal might with as well. Guy. Come get your boy. Might as well. It. This is how I know that an Eric Kahn tweet has gone truly far. When people on Facebook begin to tag me about it, that's when I know it has escaped the bounds of the Zoomers and the the the, the Boomers have found the Boomers the don't care. Yes, and, yeah. and there were plenty of people in plenty of places to be upset about this. Uh, so, Dan, I'm actually going to ask you to do the honors of reading this glorious <laughs> reading your words, glorious tweet that um, I don't know it upset some people, but here it is. Yeah, this is from at Eric underscore con that's me yep that's you there is no moral obligation to adopt children not from the ghetto sudan or russia contra the trendy movement led by russ moore and david platt the gospel does not require adoption in fact it is often unwise and detrimental to do so loving your own is natural not sin wow when you when you uh yeah when you read it out loud man that's a that's a fireball it really is. What's, it really is. So, it, and it has a lot to do with our season here on King's Hall on Fatherhood. It really does. Yeah, it really. Mm-hmm. I think one of the issues, too, and th- there was a lot of good people mixed in with a lot of, I think, bad faith actors in the comments. But one of the questions that people were asking about this was, is Eric saying things like, if you adopt a child, it's not, quote unquote, your own? Is this somehow like a racist right. tweet or, you know, et cetera, et cetera? And so I think just from the beginning— I think I'm using language that Paul is using, saying he who does not take care of his own household yeah. is worse than an unbeliever. Um, this would have been a pretty normal way, I think, for the Reformers, the Puritans. You can think of William Googe on his instruction in Ephesians 5 on the family. This is a pretty normal way to talk about natural affection for, yes, your biological children. Um, and, and we'll continue to unpack some of the, the responses and questions that arise from this. It was interesting at the... At this time of recording, I checked again. The post has almost 700,000 views, uh, 300 reposts, 833 likes, and 400 comments. Interesting to note, James White, Dr. James White. He claimed you were being ratioed. And I kindly pointed out, this is actually not a ratio. Yes. Which, you know, Dr. White, 
being a an excellent debater and of course debate being very much concerned with the clear and precise use of language was he was he thankful he was not thankful okay, dang it. and he said well, i'm not going to argue about a ratio of what it is or isn't I said, well, actually, your first premise is just factually incorrect. Time, time will tell. You could still be <laughs> time ratioed. <laughs> time will tell. Maybe we'll get a ratio out of this. Um, but, Dan, I want to ask you, because you're so active on Twitter, <laughs> do you think, like, when you see this, do you think it's just engagement farming, as many people claimed? Do you think there's any motivation beyond this? And, of course, I have to answer that question, ultimately. Yeah. But what I do don't you know your think? motivations. What do you think? Well, what's really funny is the way that I found this tweet was that I was looking at a different tweet that Eric Khan had posted. And he's like, well, you know, I've got a different one that's kind of kind of getting some attention. You have to scroll down my feed a little bit to find <laughs> it. And it was the adoption tweet. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, just knowing uh, the character of Pastor Eric Khan. I don't think this was engagement farming. This was just uh, normal Eric rhetoric, observing something that's true and just saying it. You know, and it it reminds me of something people often miss about our Twitter engagement generally, which is that something happens a lot when you're pastoring, where you're having conversations or you're counseling somebody or you're seeing a pattern or a trend that you're thinking, how can I address this pastorally? This is something that could harm the church. This was my modesty tweet that I did get ratioed, by the way, like hard. As bad as you can almost get ratioed, I well, got ratioed. And Dr. James White said, that means you're wrong. <laughs> I hope I wasn't wrong. It was funny because we, I just interjecting, but we saw that comment. Dr. James White said, if you're getting ratioed this hard, it probably means you're wrong. And I pointed through like Athanasius and Contramundum because that's kind of funny. Yeah, um, we don't want to do the ad populum thing. But, but that was also something that was pointed out by somebody else was uh, that's actually ad populum. So this is what yeah. happens when you're hanging around classical school people. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately we're like ad populum. They're like, that's an ad populum actually. You know, there's nothing quite like a great cup of coffee in the morning. Here at New Christen Impress, we've really been enjoying coffee from our friends at Squirrely Joe's Coffee, a family-owned coffee company from Illinois. Joe and his wife, Rachel, put a ton of effort into quality roasted beans and wholeheartedly support us in our vision to bring all of Christ to all of life. Yes, even to that cup of coffee that's in your hands. You can order your first batch of coffee from Squirrely Joe's by going to squirrelyjoes.com or by clicking the link in the show notes below. First-time customers will receive 20% off their first order, so be sure to head to their website. Again, that's Squirrely Joe's at squirrelyjoes.com. Let them help you in your mission while you help them in theirs. Caffeinating the Modern Reformation. Are you the owner of a small business with the potential of a large net income that will likely be subject to onerous taxation? Well, don't wait until you begin filing your tax return for 2023. Now is the right time to work with one of our sponsors, Defined Benefit Partners. In some cases, they can help you legally defer taxes on $200,000 to $300,000 worth of business income. Are you desiring to sell or buy a business but are short on the capital needed for the deal? Well, they also help facilitate such transactions with a win-win scenario for the seller and the buyer. Check out the links in the show notes for more information about Defined Benefit Partners. No, but, but yeah. so you're, you're doing all that work and you're thinking about addressing the, the principles and truths of scripture to your people or to people relevant to your life. And then 
you think of, you see something, you notice something, and you're like, oh, I'll tweet about that. I'm going to, you know, tweet about yeah. modesty, or I'm going to tweet about feminists, or I'm going to tweet about, um, you know, men leading in the home, or women submitting to their husbands. And a lot of what happens is people will assume that you are just trying to drop bombs, that you're just trying to explode things. Um, sometimes they'll assume you're talking about them. When, you know, a lot of people did that with your tweet, where they're like, oh, so you're saying that look at all of my adopted children and I'm clearly unwise and, you know, whatever you said. Well, you didn't say that. You said that it can often be unwise, which is absolutely 100% true. And the thing that happens is that you see that you're talking to people who are like, yeah, really got burned because of some of this adoption rhetoric, ended up in some unwise family decisions, really, re you know, a lot of devastation on our family. They don't see any of that context. They just go, oh, it's Eric underscore Khan. Therefore, yeah. he's just trying to farm outrage. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Uh, most of the stuff, as you said, is it's it was literally from some conversations, which I'm, we might get into. Um, just conversations with, you know, part of what's hard about this is when people are having counseling type conversations with you and you're talking about adoption. Um, these are not things that like I can say publicly. Hey, let me tell you about this situation. I also thought it was interesting that I had scores of messages, text messages, Twitter messages, Facebook messages, Instagram messages of people saying you're absolutely right and this is how it destroyed my family or this is how harmful it was because of all the rhetoric of the you know 2000s mm -hmm. um, young restless reform. Their emphasis – even today there's a huge emphasis on adoption – and a lot of the people said, I would post this publicly, but I don't want to be shamed. It's already hurt our family enough. Yeah. And uh, so I think it's it's sort of like it turned into a mob pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to maybe ask some questions about why that was. So, Eric, before we keep going, I think maybe it'd be a good idea for us just to get – clear away some of the bad faith or failure of reading comprehension or like – the worst possible assumptions that people made about your tweet. Let's just start with, are you saying adoption itself is sinful, wrong, bad, inherently unwise? What do you say? Yeah, definitely not. I, I would say basically what the issue comes down to is, is it a moral obligation to adopt? In other words, can we say to people, you are sinning if you don't adopt? Mm -hmm. You must adopt. Yeah. I think the rhetoric um, lends toward that. We've seen people in first things and – uh, even Desiring God, ERLC articles, mm -hmm. calling it things like a moral obligation to adopt or a secondary moral obligation to adopt. And really my point here is you can adopt. Yeah. But the, the the whole emphasis of saying you can is that it's a wisdom issue. Yeah. And what we can't do as pastors is bind the conscience to something that we don't have a scriptural warrant for. Yeah. Um, I. I think we'll get into this too, but I think what's really interesting about this discussion is that uh, so much of the same people in the same movement are really uncomfortable telling people that you should have children if you're married. Yeah. So I, in the past, I had gotten into it with Stephen Altroge, who's written on Twitter, who's mm -hmm. written for Desiring God and also the Gospel Coalition. And I had said, based on another conversation, that I think it's not a biblical uh, – it's not a picture of biblical obedience – for dinks, dual income, no kids, to say, hey, we want to be married and we don't want children. Right? We talked about this in the mm -hmm. fertility yeah. episode. I don't think that's a viable, obedient biblical position. And Stephen said to me in that case, he said, you are wrongfully binding the consciences of Christians right. by telling them that they should have children. 
And I said, well, in this case, I actually have a command, Genesis one twenty eight: be fruitful, multiply. Mm-hmm. And this still applies in, in the new covenant. Well, and then you fast forward to the adoption issue. Stephen was going back and forth with me about it again. And he said, no, Christians absolutely have to adopt. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. Uh, you're willing to take a biblical command and just discard it. But now you're importing a biblical command where we, we don't have a Genesis 128 for adoption. You know, we don't have a yeah. similar passage. Yeah. It's, again, to your point, one of the core, at least the way that I read it, one of the core principles that you were pointing out, which is this isn't just a fringe thing that you're just lobbing grenades for no reason. This is one of the key failures of thinking and ethics in our current evangelical world. And it's a failure of ethics when it comes to globalism versus particularism with mm. – that uh, Pastor Isker was pointing out in our cold open, that we so often – we actually uh, illegitimate we, – we, we discard the real commands of God by globalizing and generalizing them where we say, yes, we have a command to widows and orphans and we have a command to – when we turn that into a globalist, well, you have this duty to everybody – the whole church has this duty to everybody. You are of no use to anybody. You have to actually start with who were the people who were morally responsible and sinned when they walked by the man beaten on the side of the road? It was the people who walked by him right. and saw and said, eh, not my problem, rather than all of the other people in the town who had no idea that that guy was laying beaten on the side of the road. They, they weren't in sin. They didn't have a sin of omission by walking by. But what we so often do in evangelicalism is we neglect practical teaching on things like how to be a father ahead of his house who leads his wife and his family well, who provides well, who takes care of his own children first, and then works his way on outward in, in, the, in the, the outward ring sphere of responsibilities. We don't do a good job of talking about that. Instead, we send our kids to public school to be educated by pagans. We send them off to our daughters off to colleges to be educated by pagans to become, you know, things that Eric Kahn has also tweeted about controversially. We, <laughs> we, we, and then we do so while, and then we say, many of us say, oh, we don't, we want, want our kids to be self-reliant. We're not going to help them with housing when they're 18, they're out, they're on their own. While we continue to send money to Compassion International and we continue to send money for foreign missions. And again, like Isker said, those things aren't bad, but you got to get the, the, the first things first. You have to get the natural affection that even the pagans understand right first before you work out like that. Well, and I mean, I absolutely agree with you. And I think this is exactly where mainstream evangelicalism has gone wrong. So you think about the Gospel Coalition and they they invert these priorities. So you'll see lots of articles about how having a family is an idol, how being a wife and a mother is an idol, how you can make your kids an idol. Uh-huh. You don't see like, have you made adoption an idol? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think actually, you know, Dan and I were talking about this. It seems like, Dan, this is a case where did you touch the idol based on people's responses. And a lot of times people who are capable of clear thought were not thinking clearly. Yeah, There was a lot of emotional responses and outrage. Did you think it was like, was there an idol t- being touched? Mm. Yeah. I think that you can often get a, a good measure of this. Christians have done this for centuries. You'll take something that's that's generally a good. Like mm-hmm. adoption is a good. It it can be. Mm-hmm. It can be it can be a moral good. Yeah. And it becomes elevated to a status in which, you know, not to get ahead of us too far, 
becomes almost like a sacrament of the church or as Eric has said in private conversation with me, like an indulgence Mm -hmm. of the church. Uh, And you can tell that this is actually true because when you start to question it, like Eric did, you just said, hey, maybe adoption isn't wise in every case. Mm -hmm. It's not actually a yoke that Christians all ought to bear, Mm -hmm. where if you have an extra room in your house, you are morally obligated by Jesus Christ himself to adopt a kid from Sudan. Yeah. And uh, people don't have uh, a, a category in which to actually question this, this moral good, this adoption, you know, taking care of these foreign orphans in uh, saying, well, maybe there's a category in which it wouldn't be wise for somebody to adopt. It's so baked into the foundations of their presuppositions that people ought to adopt that, you know, when somebody says something about it, when they poke that idea uh, there is absolute explosion. Yeah. In fact, there were multiple cases in which Eric himself was referred to as a heretic yeah. because of the denial of universal and absolute moral obligation to adopt foreign children from foreign countries. Yeah, in fact, one guy said no one is saying it's a moral obligation, which I actually cited articles where it said exactly that. Um, but he said no one is saying a moral uh, this is a moral obligation – and you were a heretic for rejecting adoption, and no one should listen to you. And I was like, well, which is it? People also um, put a lot of labels on you, like, where they basically said, because you're making a distinction between that everywhere and localism, mm-hmm. that you are kinist, that you are racist. racist, that you are saying, you know, basically, like, let's only adopt white children because, you know, they're they're better than black children from Sudan or something like that. Which is not what – in fact, if someone in Sudan had been reading your tweet, the correct response for them would have been, I shouldn't – if I'm going to adopt, I shouldn't be looking in Atlanta, Georgia. I should be looking and seeing is there anybody in next door to me that I can first bring into my – you know, that that's the principle. It applies locally to everybody. It, it, it didn't – there was no – there was no like kinism or – and yet people were they, – they, uh, they were ascribing some things to you. Yeah, so there was uh, two tweets in particular that I, I captured. One is from Mark Spence. He, he referenced your tweet and said, Unholy pastor, friends mark and avoid as a heretic. Okay, because he questioned the moral obligation to, to adopt, that it might not be wise in every situation. There was another pastor named DJ Jenkins who said that you were, quote, absolutely depraved. Maybe he was just a Calvinist who didn't understand the Ordo Salutis. <laughs> the Ordos, yes. <laughs> I don't know if that's it. That, that is that. a take. That's charitable, though. See, that is charitable. These guys Good could job. learn. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he was just confused. <laughs> he was just confused by the Ordo Salutis. Well, yes. it, it was interesting because um, in in one of the other things I think that would be helpful with a discussion like this is helping people think through, like, how do you process issues like this? Matter of conscience, sin, or wisdom? Yeah. And Brian, you were teaching Sunday. I think it was this last Sunday morning, Sunday mm-hmm. school, and Westminster Confession, chapter 20? Yes, chapter 20 on um, the, basically, liberty of conscience. Yeah, liberty of conscience. So I went back, was reading through that. One of the things that stated in there is this. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So one of the key things here, is, as we've said, 
is we want to be really careful forcing uh, a commandment of men on people when scripture doesn't warrant that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's part of it. Uh, But the other part of this is uh, it it means that you can't have emotional reasoning when you're going through stuff. Mm -hmm. Like maybe you adopted and maybe it went well and maybe it's really important and near your heart. Yeah. But I think this is especially true with women when they get really attached to something, any subject uh, and I mean women and also women of both sexes. Yeah. Um, that they just, it's like, they're just going to like say anybody who even questioned what I did mm-hmm. or take it personally like I was, you know, Dan yeah. said, I was personally questioning them. It seems like though, this is where pastors ought to be stepping in rather than doing what a lot of pastors did, as Dan just read. You have to help your people think through this. Right. And then provide guardrails. Yeah, because one of the one of the issues here is that let's let's take someone who their family adopt. There were many ladies on Twitter who were very angry with you and assuming things about what you were your motives and things like that. There was but, some screenshotting and blocking. Yeah. A lot of it came from, well, I've adopted three. I've, you know, our family's had three foreign adoptions. We're so thankful for these children. They are our own. Eric, stop saying they're not, which is not what you're saying. Mm-mm. Once you adopt a child, it, that child is your own. Yes. And you have an obligation to provide for them. They're a member of your household. Of course, obviously. Only an idiot would say otherwise, right? And Eric's not an idiot. He just like insulted a whole swath of people. (laughs) I'm just saying like only an idiot would say that someone you've brought into the covenantal and legal protection of your household isn't your own and that that's what you were saying. So you weren't saying that, but take someone in that situation. They read you in the least charitable possible light. And what they end up doing is if that person's standard became the the way to pastor anybody through the question of adoption – Lots of families would make radically unwise choices because think about this. When you're adopting, even people who have done it before will give you, like Lexi and I looked into fostering at one point, young children in our home. It was closer to this period that many of us went through where where adoption was really being pushed as like the gospel issue of the time. And we, we had been looking into fostering. So we began to ask some people from who had done it who had fostered to adopted, done local and foreign adoptions, babies and other, you know, ages. And the advice we got over and over from many of these families was many of them said, don't do it in your current stage of life. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And almost, I think universally, every single one of them said, if you do, here are some things that you must think through. Don't adopt out of age order. So if you're adopting and you have, if your youngest kid is four, you should only adopt children under four so that there's really a natural disrupt birth order. Yeah. Yes. Age birth order. You're not introducing a 12 year old all of a sudden. They gave a lot of, you know, here's some issues that we ran into, some discipline issues, some, and, and, and I'm thankful that we actually didn't at that time. I don't think it would have been wise for our family. And I think it might have caused big problems with our own children in hindering us from doing a good job with our own children at that stage of life. So if you universalize this command and say, or even get all outraged and act like any questioning of it or any urge to caution or any urge to wisdom is inherently heretic, gospel denying, you know, Twitter engagement farming, blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, no, but have you ladies pastored families? Have you talked to families who have had their entire families blown up through adoption? Have you dealt with that pastorally? Yeah. And the answer is no, they haven't. 
And, and, and again, like, again, and maybe you can speak to this. Some of the examples of people you've spoken with, some of where this came out of, I think would be helpful for people to understand without, and, and this is difficult because the other, and I'm going to actually let you talk, but the other thing that happens is that all of the, the good and glorious and God glorifying, like, yes, we're thankful for all these successful adoptions that they are a picture of the gospel, praise the Lord, all of that. But do you think that people are going on Twitter and posting when they have an adoption horror story? Mm-mm. Do you think that that's getting the same amount of press? It was all DMs. No, no, no. It, they, that No one is going to go because they, they value those relationships and hope for the renewal of them, even when there's been total breakdown of the family and the adopted child's you know, curse the family's name and disown them and said, I want nothing to do with you. You're not going to go on Twitter and be like, well, this is what happened, everybody. Yeah. So, of course, you're not going to hear those stories that we hear. So, Eric, I think it'd be helpful if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, that, absolutely right. This is one message that I was sent. Uh, and the person said, you can use this. Obviously, don't use my name. Uh, but you can share this with your podcast listeners. I think it would be helpful for people to hear. Um, so this person says, I grew up in an incredibly strong Christian home with four brothers. My parents decided to adopt three girls who were in foster care. My parents separated seven years later and are now divorced. Obviously, I wouldn't say it's my sister's fault, but there's no doubt in my mind that bringing them into our home caused strife and division with my parents. My mom always said they brought a spirit of deception into our home. We love them, but our family is in ruins today, and I don't believe it would be had we never adopted. I mean, you can see what happens— um, I've heard a lot of people say like, okay, we brought these kids into our home and it was like having a boys or girls home. Right. And it really wasn't healthy to expose my other children to that. Somebody who was in the in the in this kind of young restless and reform movement I was talking to recently, pastor, poor, you know, you're kind of in a movement in the SBC where it's like be poor because that's righteous. More righteous, right? Um, Poverty theology. So, you know, he told me, he was like, here we were, we're like poor, but, you know, Russ Moore is like, you need to adopt, you need to adopt, you need to adopt. We adopt a, a child. Uh, through foster, they say, yep, it's, you know, he's healthy, everything else. Two, three years old, they start to realize he's got some major mental retardation, severe autism type stuff going on. Very costly and expensive to take care of. They were not prepared for that. It greatly disrupted, you know, with having biological children and having to spend so much time caring uh, for this child um, who is now late teens. And I was talking to the dad and he said, this child will live with me forever. And he said, I believe in God's providence, God's sovereign. But he said, I, I genuinely believe the rhetoric coming out of the pulpit about adoption is extremely harmful. And basically because it was like gospel yeah. is adoption. So therefore, natural imperative outflow of the gospel is you must adopt. And uh, often where this rhetoric goes to, you've, you've, you've mentioned this already obliquely, but is that it's aimed at often it lands very powerfully in young married couples who are in their like 19 to 25 years old kind of range. Mm -hmm. They have no experience in parenting yet. Many of them haven't had children of their own or they're just starting to. And then many of those families without anybody or very few people telling them any kind of like, whoa there, hey, let's think this through. Let's make sure that you're prepared for this. Let, you know, it's like, no, it's the gospel picture. Like, go, you got to, do it like let's yeah let's fundraise let's raise the twenty or forty or sixty thousand dollars and let's make this happen and and it's like this rush of um, external display that you they that then goes through and th- again the only ones you'll hear about are the ones that were successful you won't hear about the ones where it was like wow that actually really damaged our family 
harmed our kids and, and harmed our ability to be faithful to the duties we had before the Lord. Right. And I mean, two other stories that come to mind to kind of demonstrate this. Uh, I'll try to be fairly vague with details, but uh, you have teenage girls mm-hmm. and you have male child brought in and adopted, doesn't view sisters as sisters. Right. So uh, then you have uh, sexual problems. Yeah. Not knowing how much delinquency it was in the past of the the, the boy child can become so egregious. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, in those situations are, that I've had conversations with, they said, like, we were not told. Right. We were just said, like, adopt, gospel, adopt. Uh, the other one that is probably the most egregious one, uh, Russia has since banned adoptions. Yeah, they've banned foreign adoptions. And this is maybe one reason why. Uh, a church situation that I was, you know, I, I knew of uh, was a girl who was adopted from Russia into a Christian family. Uh, she had been abused as a child. Mm-hmm. Comes over, uh, father ends up going to jail because daughter is performing sexual acts on, on father. Not, you know, adoptive, adoptive father. So uh, these are examples of, I think, just extremes that, like, when you go to the ERLC website, they're not talking about this one. They're not talking about what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and then maybe one that's not as severe, but uh, speaking to some friends recently who years of miscarriage, infertility— Finally, we're able to have a child mm-hmm. and all the adoption posting was going on. And the dad said to me, he said, thank you so much for what you said. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Why would, why would that matter to you? And he said, well, when we were infertile, people were like, you must adopt. It's like heavy pressure. Yeah, like mm-hmm. heavy pressure. Like you have to do this. And he said that really meant a lot that, that you would take the shot and just, just kind of defend us. Give which the I did, warning. I didn't yeah. even realize it you know, yeah. uh, was doing. But I, I think a lot of this, this is why it's an important wisdom issue. Mm-hmm. That you have to think through this and not just – I think it's actually irresponsible. Yeah. Well, and we have – to be totally clear, again, like all of the things people are assuming, we have multiple families in the church who have wisely and successfully adopted children, whom, and they are doing a great job. Absolutely. Avoiding the ditches, did their homework, did this well. Very thankful for those children. Very thankful for those families. And it, it absolutely is one expression – of how we obey James one twenty seven and other passages about caring for widows and orphans, absolutely, and we're thankful for those families that have you know successfully done that. We're not throwing shade on them. I actually think those families who have been through the reality of the process and also know you and know like would say, no, that's a warning that people absolutely need to take seriously. Like, don't do the Owen Strand performative. God loves adoption looking after orphans in their affliction. Woe to those who speak against what God loves. What the implication of that tweet, especially if you read what you actually said and not what people emotionally, not what people felt in their emotions when they read what you said, which is a different thing. Anybody who reads that, the implication is pretty clear. Anybody who doesn't adopt is, or anybody who disagrees or urges any caution whatsoever in wisdom taking and thinking through this process for a family Woe to them. They're speaking against what God loves. Like, what? That's actually a pretty serious Are claim. you kidding me? This is another <laughs> thing. I, you think? The, the other tweet yeah. that Owen had I thought was interesting. He said, I am aware of exactly no one who has said it is sinful to love your own. Like, what? What? That's a non sequitur, utterly unrelated. And then he says, what has been said rightly is that loving those not like you is reflective of Christ's atoning blood. 
that unites Jews and Gentiles as one new man, Ephesians 2.15. God help you, Eric. God help you, Eric. Here's what I love about this tweet is that, first of all, it is a common issue with this G3 Christian nationalism divide here where the what I would say is trending in an Anabaptist direction theologically is that they don't understand categorically what you're talking about when you just use classic reformed doctrinal categories like, like natural family like natural affection or the order of loves and and those are all clearly biblical doctrines that theologians have been un uh, uh what's the word un um controversially using yeah. for hundreds of years and and then they pour into it like Owen is implying there that you're saying that Christ's atoning blood is not enough to unite Jew and Gentile and that you're saying that somehow this duty to love your own which is a direct biblical commandment is you saying and don't you love those other skinned people yeah which is like a crazy. just absolutely stupid thing to say like Here Owen I how stand. on earth did this man get a doctorate with thinking that unclear. I mean, he's thinking like an emotional teenage girl. He's not reasoning like a, 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 a Christian man who has a doctrine in theology and should be a leading example of how to treat other people in their words. And I'm like, Owen, like, what are you? Many examples. I wouldn't be speaking so strongly if Owen hadn't given example after example after example after example after example of this kind of honestly cowardly and sinful treatment of his interlocutors. Yeah. Like the implication, don't miss this people. Don't just be like, oh yeah, classic Christian nationalism tweet debate. He's saying that Eric is a Christ denying racist. Yeah. That's the implication. Yeah. Which is slanderous in the extreme. Yeah. Well, it actually libelous. makes sense that his rhetoric would be like this, uh, emotive in nature. We're yeah. trying to win because women. he's, <laughs> well, oh boy. yes. Well, they are all yes, the women who screenshotted and blocked me and went on to gossip and slander in the comments. Owen started retweeting them and saying, Amen, sister. Yeah. Well, but what I was going to say is that it, it makes sense that he would reason this way post tweet because this is the way he reasons pre tweet in order to actually make a bo- uh, adoption a moral imperative. They treat uh, foreign missions the same way. Uh, and the reason I would say this is like a sacrament or an indulgence is because automatically in these sorts of camps, if you adopt or if you're in foreign missions, you are actually in a different class of Christianity. You are set apart because of like this emotional yeah. reasoning. Yes, absolutely. It is a higher caste system. And isn't it? Isn't that somewhat Gnostic too, though, um, to say that there's like a special class Almost like the secret knowledge, like a special class of ultra Christian. Yeah, you're you're now embodying the gospel in some ultra standard way. Here's the other thing I think people are missing. There's I can't remember who tweeted this thread. It was very helpful on this conversation. Was the person who said a lot of older people and even a lot of younger people today didn't live through the period that if you're about between the age of 28 and 40, you lived this period of the 2000s where the dominant narrative was being ruled by David Platt radical, um, desiring God at its most, um, I would say, proto-woke, which I'm not saying desiring God is is everything they've ever done is woke or worth. I'm not saying that. I have the tweet if you'd like me to read it. Yeah, I want you to read it. And oh, okay. people didn't live through this era. And so like even, you know, with respect, like Dr. White, I don't think that he was 
because he wasn't in seminary in this period. He wasn't working through the culture of 20-somethings in this period, young marrieds, and the narrative that they were hearing. So yeah, Dan, I think it'd be helpful to read this tweet. Yeah, this is from Pastor Greg. I have no idea how old Eric Kahn is, but I can tell you I experienced the adoption boom in my mid-20s in seminary. I had professors berating us constantly about adopting kids. They treated them like designer accessories and symbols of spiritual piety, and it was disgusting. I think that's the tweet that you that were referencing. That was actually one of them. There was even another one that talked oh, about okay. the, Several people noted this, though, and it, it helped connect the dots for me because it was this, I was that age at this time. We were all in this, in this era at a formative time when you're not the teacher, you're, you're saying, I'm here to be taught. Like, okay, Christian leaders, thought leaders, public theologians help us to become godly pastors and, you know, ministry aspiring men. Yeah. So you have zeal yeah, without zeal. experience. No experience yet. And you're submitting to these men. You're saying, well, I'm going to go where they tell me to go, or I'm, I'm going to consider it, you know, deeply. And the result of that was that many, many families were led to believe that at this time, if you wanted to be a truly radical, you know, not go for the American false gospel or the, you know, all, there were so many packaging put on it and it, it has implications for so many areas of life that we're all still kind of detoxing from. But as controversial as it is, I understand why adoption narratives were a big part of how this pack, this radical plat kind of gospel got out there. It oh, was a huge constituent part of that messaging. Well, I was talking to somebody else uh, from that has moved since, come to our church from Salt Lake. They were going to like a gospel-centered church. And they said, oh, no, we knew people, mm -hmm. like many couples who got married. And they said, like one couple in particular they were telling me about was uh, they both got sterilized, permanently sterilized. And they said, there's too many orphans in the world. Yes. We're going to reject children mm -hmm. from, from our own loins. And we are go we are going to start pursuing adoption. Yep. So there's a yep. lot of said cases. Um, it's interesting. Another friend from the South uh, told me, he goes, oh, yeah, you go into like any SBC or Fundy Baptist church. And like it's pretty normal for like every family to have like one or two black kids. Mm -hmm. It just became the thing to do. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting to me because there was in all of this a lot of dishonest engagement about James 127. Uh-huh. Yeah. So people were claiming – that I was denying James 127. What's interesting about this to me is when you look at how the history of the church and how we've treated orphans and widows, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but there, there is a command to care for orphans and widows, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to adopt all orphans or marry all widows. No, it does not mean that. It means that there are going to be, uh, there's a general duty of the church. And here's, again, a key move you have to make in this understanding. You have to particularize it. How is this command going to be obeyed, this general command to the church in local churches? Local churches ruled by elders giving wise counsel, overseeing the process, are going to go to 1 Timothy 5. And they're going to say, what kind of widow is this? Does is, she have a relative? Is she a pious, older, godly Christian woman who is too old for remarriage and should be enrolled in the care of the church? And if so, then yes, we're going to ensure that she's – is she a younger Christian woman who should be urged to marry so that she doesn't become a gossip and she doesn't go from house to house and – well, then I'm going to urge her not to be enrolled, but to be remarried. Okay, what kind of orphans are we talking about here? Is it a 14-year-old unruly child who didn't have a father, and he's not a Christian in any sense, and it's 
okay, that's a different kind of duty than the Christians who were going out and they were saying the Romans are leaving these girl babies or these children to be exposed and die. And they pick that infant up and they bring it home. And Christians were both reviled and renowned in the ancient world for this kind of behavior. What it didn't mean, though, is that any orphan, all of a sudden the local church had that a moral obligation to adopt them fully into the family. Christians throughout the ages have wisely ordered how they care for or- – and, and one of the wise things that they've done is that in many cases where there are older children who would genuinely – again, I know this sounds controversial, but older children for whom it would be very unwise for your other children, for many families to bring them in as their own, be very unwise for the culture and the discipleship of the other children in the family that you have a direct duty to. Christians would often start orphanages. George Mueller. They would start uh, boys' homes, girls' homes, Boy, keeping them separate, the boys from the girls, knowing the egregious sexual abuse and sexual issues that arise in some of these, because you have 12, 13 fatherless boys who have not been discipled whatsoever, going through puberty, and then all of a sudden, some families have adopted children like this, and they've ended up having to run a lockdown in their home where one wing of the house is where the girls go and it's got a different key. And at night, it's like there's a full lockdown system to keep them safe from the adopted sibling. Guys, that's not made up. That happens, right? So you have to take a command like this, particularize it, let it be governed by the local church in their local area, and be very careful in the way you talk about it that you don't heap burdens on people that might lead them to make an unwise decision for their family. Give them wise ways of loving the widow and the orphan that are consistent with the biblical ordering of loves, consistent with biblical wisdom. And what people, what was so criminal about the way people are reacting to this is they were making it act like when you, when you were saying the order of loves being properly worked out from the middle, that you were saying that all of those people who have adopted, all the white families that have adopted black children are unwise and that you're, you know, like they're not really their own. They imported all of that. Yeah. They brought that with them to your tweet. You didn't say any of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, One of the things, Brian, that I was just like providentially this morning, I was thinking about all this, reading in Acts 19, Paul causes riot at Ephesus Yeah, because he's denouncing idol worship. But the problem is that the silversmiths are making a lot of money. Yeah off of this. And, you know, we're told, I think 50,000 pieces of silver was the amount of the books that they burned mm-hmm. with this is like, you, you guys are haunted cosmos. So this is like witchcraft. Yeah. The, all sorts of witchy stuff, all sorts of witchy stuff, magic books. I think this is another piece of the pie that people do not consider because it, it doesn't fit in that warm, glowy sermonic format of what people have been told in a lot of gospel centered churches. But you have to realize that adoption is an industry. Mm-hmm. People make their livings off of this. So I, the, the reason I started looking at this uh, was because one of our listeners and somebody who follows on Twitter said, well, you know, a lot of these conferences are sponsored by adoption agencies, these mega conferences that people are happening or having. Um, so I haven't tracked that down yet, but that was worth noting. So I, I did look this up, though. Uh, in 2022, it was reported that the adoption industry, and that's what it is, the adoption industry was worth something like $24 billion in, in a single year. So yeah. one of the things we need to be aware of is that this is, you know, we were told in journalism, like follow the money. There's definitely money involved in the financial equation. Think about if you're an adoption agency mm-hmm. and you have all these pastors who maybe you're donating to their charity. You have all these pastors 
who are promoting your message, which brings in more clients. Think about – this is the other thing I think people don't realize. They're pointing to Christians in the Roman era adopting children. I'm guessing they weren't paying $70,000 to do a domestic adoption. Mm-hmm. It, they were probably just taking the children and not paying anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you start to mix in the politics of donors and the politics of fundraising into issues, you're just going to have bad faith actors who get in and basically take something that is absolutely virtuous at its core. Um, pro-life industry is another example of this. There's grift. And they come in and, and they, they, make a, um, they make a living on it. And they, they monetize. And basically at adoption, what happens is that you take something where you're actually monetizing people's virtue and you're, you're, you're doing it in a way that can fun- functionally end up being like human trafficking where their um, f- foreign countries do this all the time. They take care of Ameri- – they take advantage of a wealthy American philanthropy by – they basically sell children. Well, it's absolutely wicked. In fact, this is – so in 2013, Russia banned U.S. adoptions. Mm-hmm. And one of their biggest concerns was that there were a lot of abuses happening and that these children would be sold into human trafficking. And even yeah, – and, and also LGBTQ families, but we repeat ourselves – Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck De Laterante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street, and avoid the coming banking meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. But, well, we've read the articles yeah. about the you know homosexual men uh, who are adopting children and then abusing them. Yes. Uh, putting this stuff online for people's consumption, pornographic, otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely wicked, wicked and criminal. So I, I think you also have to acknowledge that reality that there are – I'm not saying everyone in the industry is bad. Absolutely not. Of course not. I'm sure there are great adoption agencies yeah. and companies. Yeah. But I am saying you need to be aware that people are going to prey on this industry. Yeah, and many of them lament the cost. Correct. They would say – and here's – and the good ones will say yes, and this is exactly where the criminal evil – grifting is happening. Often it's in government regulation and dealing with foreign governments. And But you just have to realize that you, they, people, wicked men will actually take your Christian virtue and they will try to take advantage of it. Like monetize it. In order to monetize it. And so I think if we're, if we're winding towards kind of a landing place for this episode, the question I think that's last for us to discuss that would be really important and connecting it to our season. Like, it's not random that we're doing this here in a season on fatherhood. We're not just doing this because, oh, this is a, a big tweet that's happening to, you know, be controversial now. Is that fathers, men, need to think very carefully about how they protect their homes from emotionalist thinking, people who will prey on their wives' emotions because um, the, the people will prey on your wife's emotions in order to try and convince you to do something without thinking it through clearly, without seeking godly counsel. Mm. So what? how should a father be thinking? Let, let's split this into two categories, maybe even three categories. 
and the one would be how, how should a father considering their, they've been thinking about adoption, what should they be thinking through? Second would be, okay, you've adopted children and that's your situation as a father. What are some things that you should be thinking through to make sure that you do a good job to your, these are now your children. And then um, also I think maybe the third category would be what, what should, <laughs> what would we say that people should be who were offended by your tweet? Because hmm. some of our listeners, I even saw some people say, you know, I'm usually with Eric, but I think he went too far here. It, I think any last words on that? This is probably too big of a question. This is why you're usually the one who's <laughs> leading it. I think well, in like I, complex three-part questions and you just like say, so Dan, what do you think about this? But I'll actually start with the last one because it's the one I remember. But also, <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah. I, 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 there, I there's kind of like two categories. On the one hand, there's a lot of people – who have followed us for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, again, it was it was kind of sad to see they blocked and started screenshotting, and they were very upset. Um, one of the ones that that didn't do that uh, the the handle is Patriarchy Hannah, uh-huh. and she responded and she said, "Okay, I'm, I, I I you know I've trusted a lot of what you've said. I'm having a hard time digesting. Uh, you know, we've adopted. Walk me through this." Yeah, she said, "Where are people saying moral obligation?" And I shared an article from Russ Moore, and I shared an article, I think, from First Things, where they literally said moral obligation to adopt. And and then, um, you know, we talked about it, and she said, wow, I did not know that. Thank you. I'm going to talk with my husband about this. Um, and then I think I'll end up actually uh, doing some podcasting with them. But but I think that is the better way for women to say – and this is a woman you can – I don't know who it is. But generally it's like, okay, you can tell that her husband has a firm – leadership role in the home. Right. Res- respects. He's, he's loving her. Yeah, she respects him. She respects him in all the right ways. But this this is a really good, and, and we had people in our church even who saw the tweet and they said, one guy in fact said to me, he said, yeah, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I, I kind of could identify with some of the criticisms. But I said, this is, this is a guy that I trust. I've gotten counsel from. So I'm just going to go ask him. Mm-hmm. What, 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 you, without importing all the false narratives. Yeah. What, what did you mean? And here's some of my questions. And then afterward, it, it usually always went well. Yeah. So I would say be that kind of, particularly be that kind of lady. Husbands, if you're leading your wives through stuff like this, you know, you always have to guard, like, you know, help her think through, like, especially with social media and things online. Uh, we live in an age that is outrage farming. Yes. And so people are easily, what I would say is just like Brian said before about anger, it's easy to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Your outrage is easy to manipulate. Yes. Oh, I saw this this story about dead babies in Israel. Like, let's launch the nukes, right? And and then maybe a wise father would say, like, well, let's wait and see if that's actually true. Hey, yeah, we're in the age of AI and video and audio manipulation. Like, let's just give it a second. Let's pause. And then if you waited a day, you were like, okay, false report. So there was actually no reason to be outraged. So I, I would say that's part of it. Just having self control and discipline as you're reading things online and waiting through them, Dan. You look like you're about pensive about oh, this Oh, man, I'm matter. so satisfied to just listen to your beautiful voice. No, lies. No, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is uh, I have a foundational understanding of why people are outraged, right? So this isn't necessarily like just straight confusion, but I am slightly confused because if you just boil down your tweet to, to a single sentence, uh, I think it would be uh, – now I said a single sentence instead of multiple sentences, but uh, that you've been told it's a moral obligation to adopt and instead you should apply wisdom. I mean that's really all that you said. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I mean, anybody that has an issue with that, I, I, I just. So, so I'm like derailing, mm-hmm. but, but I do have a question about this. Yeah. yeah. Cause a lot of people came in and said, well, this could have been reworded. Um, you could have not said it in that way. I mean, I, to me, I read that as just like the, the typical winsome, uh, crowd type, you know, well, a lot policing. of times it's, I don't like your tweet and I don't have a good reason so, so I'm going to police. Yeah. Ad hominem. But it is interesting because Brian, I was thinking about this, like how many times Jesus will just drop an absolute bomb. Like whoever, whoever believes in me must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he's like, peace out, mic drop. A lot of people stop following him. And then his disciples will come to him and they'll be like, what did you mean by that? And he'll explain and they'll grow deeper in faith. But it seems like there's at least a place for, you know, like like people were saying, like, well, why didn't you provide every exception? Why didn't you provide every nuance? You could have nuanced this more. What are you typically thinking when you hear that? Well, about 95% of those people, no matter what nuance you had provided because it's you, would would hate <laughs> it. They'd find a reason. That's true of about 95% of ne- negative interaction with me and you, it I wouldn't think, have saved on Twitter. It. Just given – Given the fact that we've had controversial tweets that have gone pretty far, uh, multiple 10,000 followers, that kind of thing, we just have to deal with that every single day with everything we say. About 80 to 95% of people who are negative are going to – they don't care how much you nuance. They just hate your face, right? (laughs) Like there's a couple that – now Lexi's been tweeting again recently, and they're just like nagging her in the comments too. I'm like, babe, block block them. But for those serious 5%, um, that are like, no, 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 I, I, res- I respect you. I'm hearing you out. I haven't just decided that you're an idiot a year ago and I'm just going to rage tweet back at whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a rage reply guy or reply gal to your tweets all the time. To those people, I would say, yeah, totally. I understand why the, Like any of the tweets that have been controversial for many of us will often have some serious people saying, I don't like the way you said that. And to those people, I would say, that's fine. I'm not telling you how you have to communicate every truth, but as somebody who does communicate truth into culture, into real people all day long, every day for years, you have to reckon with the reality that sometimes saying things in a way that's intentionally going to unsettle the reader or listener is actually a rhetorically effective and, and wise move. Because in when, you, when you're dealing with you're countering narratives that are deeply ingrained in a culture like the one about it, clearly the one about adoption in order to get a hearing at all. Sometimes you have to really unsettle people to get them to question their foundational thinking on an issue at all. Sometimes you really have to shake their foundations and say, no, 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 but, but, but think like the modesty tweets, a good example. The one I said, don't ladies shouldn't be posting immodest pictures, even to show their newborn baby. And, and that was because, I had seen a lot of Christian women online that I thought were otherwise like godly and respectable women all of a sudden posting, here's my baby on my breast with 80% of my breast exposed, but it's okay because I'm in a hospital room or I'm in a home birth center or I'm in my home and I just had a baby. And, and, and I said that knowing that a lot of people would be like, how dare you sexualize this intimate motherly moment? I was like, well, no, 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 no. I'm that not. was actually not the response, though, was it? <laughs> well, lots of people did say that. Oh, they did? Yeah, they did. They said, how dare you sexualize that moment? Most of the replies were off limits because... Yeah, don't go look at that tweet, people. <laughs> so this is another case where I would say people who are like, no, I agree with the core everything you said. It just I didn't like the way that you said it. 
I would say, well, you know, it actually is a legitimate rhetorical move to unsettle a listener on purpose because you know how deeply ingrained the narrative is that you're combating. And so you have to like get them to actually stop and think about the thing you're talking about. And I, and I would just say, um, especially for the ladies who are upset, who do, who aren't unreasonable beyond, you know, who are like, no matter what we say, they're going to hate. I would just say like, okay, think about why you respect Pastor Khan. And a lot of it's going to come back to him saying hard things bluntly about situations other people aren't. And then I would say, give him the benefit of the doubt when it strikes you as, you know, wow. And know this, that like the, all the regularly in this room or in this church, we're, 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 we're fallible men. We have brothers and pastors around. There are absolutely times when we've said to one another, dude, you are off on that. You're just wrong. You shouldn't have said that. So there are also checks and balances here where if, if Dan and I had genuinely been like, Eric was out to lunch on this. He is wrong. Take it out. We would have said it. I mean, the thing him. is, I don't think the tweet was brash or harsh. Mm. It would have been harsh if Eric had said, uh, God damn all of the men that put moral, extra biblical moral obligations on Christians to adopt when it might be unwise. That would have been. That would have been very strong. That would have been strong. Yeah, that would have so been more of a damn. Here, here's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, if I tweeted ever, if he one tweeted. could imagine, one could think. Yeah, I think this is what's going on, though. Put put on your tinfoil hats for a moment. So, there would not have been the outrage around this tweet if there weren't a certain group of men, the G three guys in particular, that had drawn attention to it. And I think this was definitely a strategy because I think it's a really G three MacArthur, Phil Johnson got involved, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but they are connected. Yeah, oh yeah. Masters uh, Seminary is com- connected to G three, so. In some way, and I, I don't know the inner workings of the Anabaptists. So here's what I think is going on. And so you have men like, and I hope you haven't heard of most of these guys because they're really not worth following. But if you have like Anthony Bradley or Virgil Walker, Owen Strand, uh, Phil Johnson, uh, Greg Thornburg, Scott Aniel, Scott Aniel, Josh Buies, Josh Buies, all of these guys responded. To Eric's tweet. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think is actually because they're coordinating efforts in order to gain ground and to see a movement that is possibly growing, but there's a bigger issue going on. So I think that's a strategy or a tactic that they might be using. And I say that because they all dogpiled mm-hmm. onto this one. In almost the exact tweet. same way. In yeah. the, yes, in the same way. And the way they did it though is really, really concerning. Because we talk about them like emoting and like, I can't believe they said this. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, if you were to boil down and reduce what they're saying, uh, I could I have verses like Proverbs it says a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. I think ultimately what you see is a sin that's being cultivated uh, like leaven within a lump of dough in this G3 leadership is a sin of false witness mm-hmm. in order to sow discord for their own purposes. Yeah, Owen Strand bore false witness, yes. obviously. Yes, well, that, and that's what they're trying to do yeah. is by twisting words and making assumptions. Yeah. Even, uh, so this Greg Thornburg guy, I don't know if he's a G3 I, I honestly, directors. Yeah, I think he's just he's a guy. one of the least clear thinkers I've ever encountered on Yes, on Phil the, Johnson, on though, quote tweeted him. That's why I reference him. 
He just goes off and says, I'm going to assume Eric's motivations as a kinist. And then he ascribes a whole lot of racist thoughts to this tweet that essentially says, hey, people said that you were morally obligated to adopt and that it's something that you needed to do and it might not be wise. And all of a sudden, you know, he's got this uh, like seven points uh, in a tweet. And uh, again, retweeted that's, by that's, Scott Inniel and then Phil Johnson. Correct. Correct. And, and so that's why I bring it up. But ultimately, this is what's happening there. And uh, honestly, for those that are bearing false witness, may God have mercy on you. Mm-hmm. May God have mercy on you because there is nothing but judgment that awaits you, especially when you're a teacher. Yeah. It's like, how convenient is that if, if you have a rhetorical opponent that you need to defeat? And you can just make – it's an easy two-step move, win any argument in these two steps. Dan, if I, if you could pretend like you're arguing for some ridiculous position, like let's say that Dan is arguing that Christians should um, desire for their politicians to bend the knee to Christ, some ridiculous position like that. And then I said, as an opponent of your view, you were uh-huh. like, Psalm 2, no. But, you know, Brian, it says in Psalm 2, all these things – maybe we should consider these pastors. If I said – that really sounds like someone think something a serial killer would say. Yeah. Therefore, I win. See, and it's very it's hard to see. I just it's step one. It's just at home. Just say the other person is guilty of an insanely bad sin, and then step two, you win the argument. Well, and this so is, you guys can try that. If you this ever is need what's that. so concerning. Thank you for that, Tim. Yeah, you got that. It. To me, as the the whole rhetorical process has been straight out of the leftist playbook. Yeah, it's what Russ Moore did for years. It's what Tabidi did for years. Yeah. It's what. You know, Beth Moore, all these people have done for years. And so I think if you're following any of the debate, hopefully you're not. Hopefully you're like, I have a peaceful life because I don't look at that trash. Mm. Here's one thing to consider. Joe Rigney said this in the interview. This will be coming out uh, for listeners in coming weeks. So look forward to that. We did get into the Christian nationalism G3 thing. And Joe said, I I would say this about our Anabaptist brothers. When you are continually strawmanning people, Eventually, people will go back and see that that's not what they said, mm-hmm. and then you are going to lose all credibility. You'll lose credibility. You're just destroying yourself. They might buy it one time, might buy it twice, but even the most, like, uh, even the listener who is the most um, with you to start with, people have been doing this around your tweet. They're like, but I'm kind of with these guys, but this is ridiculous. You're actually lying. You're like, that's not true at all. That's not what he said. They'll eventually see through it, and you'll lose credibility. It's like this is why I don't worry when a lot of people hate something that comes out of Ogden. As long as we've sat down and thought, let's have the high ground in the sense that we really are convinced that what we said was true and timely and helpful, which we we try to do that, obviously. If 80% of the world reacts negatively to it and tone polices and all of that, I just, I just say we're playing the long game. Must actually be an issue. In 20 to 50 years. We'll see who was right about these principles. Yeah, and and I and I'm willing to say we'll stack the fruit up. We'll we'll let our fruit do the talking at the end of the day, and they can let their fruit talking. And I pr- I hope the Lord bears good fruit in all these brothers who who you know r- hate all of us. I hope because I think it would mean repentance. But I mean, you know, like let's let's let the fruit do the talking at the end yeah. of the day, and and we'll see how it comes out. People will say like. Let's let the fruit do the talking. Oh, they're they're anti-adoption. Well, no, here are some families in our churches that were very much behind who adopted, doing a good job, love those kids. Next. Oh, well, they're racists, and they they hate all people. Of, yeah, okay, well, here, here look, let, why don't you ask any of the people in our church who are not, nor, they don't look Nordic, 
if we, you know, regularly put on white hoods and, you know, burn crosses in their, their, uh, driveways is, well, no, they don't. It's just, it's so much of it is so silly that uh, we just chuckle and we, <laughs> we chuckle, we move on and we record hour long podcast responses. Yeah. And, and by the way, I do think, uh, one of the reasons for responding, we did have a lot of faithful, not, they were in the 5%. They were not people going crazy. But they say, hey, here's some questions. This would be helpful. We, we, we'd ask that you, uh, you know, speak to this issue. Uh, I'll be on with Joel Webin later today uh, for Right Response Ministries talking about the issue. Joel, by the way, is adopted. And Joel said, I'm adopted, and I agree with your tweet. I actually adopted Joel. I actually was going to beat you to Joel it, is actually my son. He's your son. Yes. Mm-hmm. Breaking. This yeah. just in. Yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, other things that you might have heard here first, and this is this – is, we're going to close on a happy – a happy uh, little thing here. And that is, Brian, you have an album. Yes. That is coming out for Christmas. Um, from what I understand, if you've heard of Mariah Carey Christmas albums, yeah. mm-hmm. this is 100% not like that. Oh, I was going to say, I was going to lean into it. Yeah, it's exactly like Mariah Carey. 100%. Uh, <laughs> except without like, minus the flagrant immodesty, which nobody's asking for from me. Nobody's actually requested that. From me, Please I don't no. think it would work to sell albums. But, I'm going to be honest, like my physique, to, I don't think it would sell albums. If you had to give a quick pitch, could you yeah. imagine that? Can you imagine? I and just do a shirtless. The title like, is Cannon like, "All cover. I Want for Christmas Is You." Is you. Oh. <laughs> no, it is. It's just a very. This is a very simple, um, raw acoustic EP. I recorded. There's three, two classic hymns and one psalm setting on the album, and uh, they're. Almost all recorded with just me playing the song, guitar and the vocals at the same time, with a single mic in front of me. Very raw. Had Emily Heimstra play some viola. Uh, a professional harmonica player came in and played some harmonica on one of them. Was that you? It was me. Uh, so I saw the professional. <laughs> Dan knew. Um, uh, I, I kind of don't want to give away because I know it's a secret sauce. You know, you yeah. you, mm-hmm. you buy an album, an EP, whatever you want to yeah. call it. There's always a bonus track. Um, I believe the bonus track on this one is Radioactive. Um, you know, the listeners will start singing. The listeners will have to wait and see. Because if I buy mine and there's not, I'm going to be furious. Well, you know how they have the the Snyder cut, like the director's cut. Um, I have the con cut, and I give it just for you. Where at the end of two minutes of silence after the last track, you just you hear me whispering the words to Radioactive. Whispering, you're welcome. I want I want to hear the full song. This is silly. Is it though, Dan? Yeah, it's what we do. In a very so real where, sense. Brian, where can people find this album? Where can they buy it? Yeah, you'll be able to find uh, this November sixth, Monday, and beyond. Any streaming platform: Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, YouTube Music, Amazon Music. Just look for my name, B R I A N S A U V E, on my website, which is the same thing, BrianSove.com. There's links to all of those as well, and uh, just enjoy, guys. Absolutely, hope, hope it builds you up. I, I do too. I hope it builds you up. Uh, final plug. I just want to – for people who are listening to the King's Hall and who have not listened to it yet, the second greatest podcast on the face of the planet behind this one. Yeah. Is – Hard Men po- Haunted Consoles. Oh, okay. So uh, latest episode, Diat Love Pass. Yeah. I mean 30-second elevator pitch. Man. What's it about? Why should they listen? 30 seconds. Diat Love With Pass. With the greatest story I know. told Outside of the Bible. Well, can I can I can <sighs> yeah. I actually yeah. by the way, I don't even know what Diatlov Pass is. Are you is. serious? I don't know. Wow. Diatlov Pass is one of the greatest mysteries 
mm-hmm. of the modern world. Why? Why is it a... Why? I don't want to give it away. Happened? No, just give me... In 1959, nine expert hikers were found dead in the Ural Mountains under suspicious circumstances. Scattered hundreds of yards from their tent, which they had cut out from the inside and fled, many times unclothed into the sub-zero temperatures of the Siberian wilderness. What drove these intrepid hikers from their tent? What ate some of their faces? Find out on this week's episode of Haunted Cosmos. Dude, you did that without notes. No notes. (laughs) Well, here's why. Because we sat down and recorded. These are two-hour episodes. Ben and I sat down and recorded the Atloff Pass. We got an hour and 35 minutes in. And then we're like, hey, let's pause. Got to go to the bathroom. Reach down to pause the recording. Realize we hadn't... You can't pause the recording. You haven't started. No. So... (laughs) This has happened multiple times now. So then, just once. Oh, just once. Just once. It was the Atloff. So we, we, we... wept openly we went to chilies we ate chilies and margaritas we billed it to new chris and impress i haven't seen the receipt uh you already reimbursed it and then oh i did okay (laughs) oh this was a while ago ago. okay all right and then we came back and we redid the whole thing that's why eric and i justify all of our work lunches I know, yeah. It's I, because I, of your chilies. Yeah, right. It's because of... Extravaganza. Well, we plan every season at chilies. That's another reason you should... I mean, the whole thing's drenched in seed oils. Disgusting. What more can I say? Sorry, you trying to pitch the show? Or give <laughs> Sorry, another show? I just... So, DLF Pass... silly again. DLF Pass, uh, definitely check that out. Check out Haunted Cosmos. Follow along on Twitter. Tom Pompadil. Follow that guy. At Tom Pompadil. Ben we Garrett. put more than 40 hours of work and sound design into each episode of Haunted Cosmos, much like the King's Hall podcast. Except opposite. <laughs> so uh, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tagging along for this episode of the podcast. Festival Lente. Until next time. What does that even mean? <laughs> I almost said stay frosty. <laughs> you almost, it, that's actually what it means. Make haste slowly. Everyone make haste slowly. Make haste to stay frosty slowly. Slowly frosty. Slowly frosty.